on ABC Radio. You are with Rod Quinn. This is the Overnights program. And in, well, you know, in just a moment, in a little while, we'll talk about uh, the last surviving and now sadly dead um, member of the Cordettes who had a lot of hits back in the 1950s. But before we get to that, what is happening in the United States, in Boston in particular? Celeste Katz is there for us this morning. Good morning, Celeste, or good evening, or good afternoon. I'm not quite sure what time it is. Good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Look, can I ask you first, this is something that's absolutely consuming Australia at the moment to do with the coronavirus. Virus. Is there panic buying of toilet paper in the US or in Boston? I have not heard uh, that toilet paper is particularly the commodity that people are running to the stores to get. I think it's more, we're more in the sort of hand sanitizer, uh, overpriced face mask category. Yeah, see, face masks and hand sanitizer, I can understand. But toilet paper? Like, in what way does coronavirus affect that? That's what I don't understand. Anyway. Yeah, well, I don't. I don't think, as far as what I've heard and seen here in the United States in Boston, uh, toilet paper is—it's uh, on the shopping list. Don't get me wrong; we're still using it, uh, but uh, no, there's no run on the toilet paper aisle, as far as I know. So to speak. Well, we've got people lining up for when the trucks are arriving. Someone's just sent me a video of that. We've got, uh, you know, the uh, toilet paper manufacturers working 24 hours a day to provide it for shops which are selling out with people buying, you know, 100 rolls in one go. It just is, it's the greatest, it's the weirdest thing I've seen in my lifetime when it came to panic buying. And you know, it's it's totally and utterly unfathomable because there's nothing about the, there is nothing, I mean, firstly, you can have stuff delivered to your house, like... That's what happens these days when it comes to shopping at supermarkets. You can have it home delivered. You don't need to go out and buy it. It's not like you, if you're trapped in your home for a month or whatever with coronavirus, you can't get supplies in. That's It's just it's beyond belief. But anyway, strange people. I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, I, I can't say that we have... Uh, but you know what? Maybe, maybe we're just behind the times and Australia has figured out something that we have not here and we will have to rush to catch up. Yeah, well, please don't. But you know, at this time, uh, during this world crisis, Celeste, we need leadership from our leaders, do we not? Is President Trump providing that? Well, that's something that's come up, well, it's come up a lot, and I think you and I have talked about some of those issues in the past here on uh, Overnight, but uh, in particular, the coronavirus really has a lot of people, frankly, worried and frankly angry in terms of how President Trump is uh, describing the threat. Some people would use the phrase downplaying, minimizing the threat of coronavirus. Uh, a lot of people are talking about uh, just last night, he did a, a telephone appearance on Fox News with Sean Hannity, who is certainly one of his favorite television hosts here in the U.S. And uh, they were talking about the World Health Organization's uh, projections or estimates on the death rate from coronavirus. The uh, the World Health Organization has that up around three to four percent, and the president came out and said it was just a quote hunch on his part, but he believes that the rate is much lower. And uh, 
specifically people got worried and they said, you know, that some people might be infected, they may not know it, they may go to work, and then they may get better, and so the uh, infection rate might be higher, which would statistically make the death rate by comparison lower. And the idea of sort of, A, blindly disregarding uh, percentages given up by the World Health Organization or by the Centers for Disease Control, and then sort of talking uh, you know, rather lightly about people going to work while they're infected with COVID-19 is very scary for a lot of people here in the U.S. And a lot of people are wondering why the president isn't doing more to encourage people not to panic. Panic isn't good, but encouraging people to take this very seriously and to err on the side of caution. Uh, as you well know, the stock markets have been going absolutely bonkers here on news of uh, coronavirus and its uh, various forms and uh, uh, you know, the ancillary issues that go along with it. But uh, a lot of people really are questioning whether the president is handling this appropriately. And some people say he's not doing this right at all. Mm. So people have wondered all the time during the Trump presidency, what would happen if a real crisis occurred? And, uh, you know, he has in some ways confected a crisis, like the whole thing with North Korea. They were never going to attack. They were never really a threat the way that he presented it, nuclear threat. But he kind of had that crisis and then went and apparently solved the crisis. Not really. But this is an actual crisis, and he is dealing with it in the same way as he appears to deal with everything else, that is, by... You know, rejecting the um, the views of scientists and going on his own hunch, as you said, as he as he said, and thinking that he knows better than everybody else about it, and then, when in doubt, blame President Obama for not having enough test kits. And of course, Obama was out of office three years ago, so I'm not quite sure how that works. But like, it's a familiar pattern. But this time it actually matters. He can talk all he like likes about the number of people who turned up at his inauguration and all that sort of stuff. But here people's lives are actually in danger, some people. And he can't just say, I'll oh, go to work if you've got this virus. That's just, that's, cr that's madness. Why? I cannot believe that even he has not taken a step back and said, you know what, this time I'm going to listen to the experts. Well, President Trump does not have an incredibly long and storied history of listening to the experts. Uh, his cabinet is sort of a, known as a game of musical chairs where people come in and they're very much vaunted and lauded as the best. He, has, he hires only the best people, quote unquote. And then a few months or a year later, they're gone because he you know, heard them say something he didn't like, or uh, he disagreed with something they said, or he thinks that they are somehow stealing the spotlight or weakening his posture on an issue, and they're gone. So this certainly, Trump has been consistent in being inconsistent in that way, bringing people on and then letting them go, but he does regularly have, uh, you know, uh, have an inclination to defy his own cabinet, his own experts, uh, lawmakers, uh, federal agencies, so on. Um, this is sort of a, you know, his, his classic MO. In this case, though, as you say, this is something that directly impacts people's lives. Uh, in fairness, you can understand, and I think it is, in fact, the duty of a high public official, the, you know, our commander in chief, the, 
um, the leader of our country to encourage people not to panic. I think that's a legitimate activity. You don't want people to have runs. You don't want price gouging. You don't want uh, uh, race-based or origin-based discrimination to be fired up. Um, A lot of uh, Chinatowns in the United States, for example, have seen a cataclysmic drop in business because people are afraid to patronize restaurants and stores and so on. Like, that stuff is not good. So if the president were aiming his comments at controlling the spread of rumors uh, as well as the spread of disease, that would be one thing. And I think the concern is that that is not what is happening here. Um, States and cities are acting now uh, somewhat independently, I mean, in coordination with the federal government, but are taking their own steps to set aside isolation beds for potential uh, coronavirus patients, uh, to offer restrictions or suggestions on how people should act, to cancel large public events, um, to get out information about what's really going on with coronavirus. I think those efforts are very important. I think the problem is the president, um, by uh, issuing information that is sort of counter to what we know to be true, is not really helping matters. So he's put Vice President Mike Pence sort of in charge of the American response. How's that going? Uh, Mike Pence is obviously, look, he's not a doctor, he's not a scientist and so on, but uh, he has been praised for some of the people that he has enlisted in the effort to deal with coronavirus. Uh, Some people are looking at Pence and saying, well, he's arguably a more steady, more measured person, that uh, his legacy could be based in part on how poorly or how well he handles this. Uh, there are some people that think that Trump is just wants to have somebody to throw under the bus if yeah. things go south on this. Though. So, you know, if things do turn bad, he can say, well, look, I put Mike Pence in charge and he did a lousy job. Right. Uh, President Trump is quite good from from everything that we've observed at uh making everything somebody else's fault uh when he when he feels the need to do that there is also a basically secretary of health and human services i think uh health uh, i think in the u.s this is uh secretary azar alex azar um what's the secretary been up to as well uh, because you would think that they would step forward and take a major role here yeah, HHS, certainly in coordination with the CDC, that's the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, has been uh, playing a role in this, as has the State Department, in terms of travel restrictions, travel advisories, and so on. Uh, some people saw Trump's decision to put Pence on this case as uh, an undermining of Alex Azar, Secretary Azar, and his uh, his oversight of these matters as head of health and human services, but they're supposed to be working together. And from what they say, it's all one big, happy, anti-COVID-19 family. Okay. Before we leave the president, I mean, he's blamed the Democrats. Uh, and look, this is also about, you know, you, he could talk about fake news as well. I mean, he, he can dismiss a lot of this is fake news, but you know when the numbers keep rising, it's very hard to call it fake news. And I don't, I think he hasn't gone that far yet. But I think a lot of it, it seems just from what he's saying is that he really doesn't believe a lot of this. Well, yeah, that I mean, he's also put out information. First of all, he said that 
he does not believe the uh, numbers or the the infection rate or the mortality rate is as high as uh, some yeah. of the projections. These are projections given out by legitimate public health authorities internationally and in the U.S. Uh, he's made suggestions that uh, the development of a vaccine for the coronavirus is imminent, whereas uh, people who are uh, scientists and experts in this field say that's not the case. There is just not a vaccine on the immediate horizon, and people shouldn't count on that, and people should take precautions. They should uh, self-quarantine if they feel sick. Um, we're not cutting off entire cities or anything. The number of coronavirus cases in the United States is, in fact, not that high, um, but we do have it now uh, in 18 states out of 50. Uh, so that's expected to uh, to increase if you look at just the natural course of people traveling, moving around, being in contact. There's a, a cruise ship that has been um, quarantined off the coast of California now, um, a similar situation to what happened with the, uh, the Princess cruise ship yeah. in Japan, in Yokohama. So uh, just as a natural you know, function of people moving around a lot in the United States and it being a, a populous country, people are going to get sick. The question is, can we identify it? Can we contain it? Can we encourage people to take steps? Like, I'm washing my hands until they're, like, a cut-up mess. Like, they really are. Uh, but, you know, just being careful, basic stuff like not touching your face, all yeah. these kinds of things that you hear. Uh, the president has encouraged people not to touch their faces and then is photographed at yeah. health briefings touching his face. Mm. So, well, you know, sort of disconnect there. Most people do that, and they do it millions of times a day. Celeste Katz is our guest in uh, well, Boston or New York? I think she's certainly in the East Coast this morning. Um, and the big story this week politically, of course, was the Super Tuesday result where uh, Joe Biden came roaring back, I think, to the relief of a lot of people who don't necessarily want to see Bernie Sanders run for president because they would see him not as a very good candidate if uh, they want to beat President Trump. Um you know, it was kind of inevitable. Somebody had to beat Sanders at some point, and the other candidates for the size of the field just weren't all that strong, were they? And Joe was probably going to be the best of those candidates. And look, 60% of the African American, oh, 60% of the Democrat vote is probably African American, I think. So, or certainly in the primaries, he does well traditionally with them. But, you know, we'll see what happens. What was your take on what happened? Yeah, that we've seen, uh, look, this is how primaries work here, and uh, this is a natural narrowing of the field. You have Joe Biden, somebody who's been in public life for a very, very, very long time, longtime senator, former vice president to Barack Obama, somebody that people are remembering uh, quite often and very fondly these days during the Trump administration. Um, Bernie Sanders, on the other hand, gave... Hillary Clinton, an incredibly, incredibly good run for her money in the 2016 mm. Democratic primary. He excited a lot of people with sort of quote-unquote revolutionary ideas. He has a campaign infrastructure in place. He's able to mobilize people to get out the vote. And then you did have some people who were interesting to a section of the electorate, but they couldn't really take it all the way. So people like Pete Buttigieg, uh, Amy Klobuchar, Mike Bloomberg, and just this morning, Elizabeth Warren, senator from Massachusetts, where I'm speaking to you from, have all come out of the race. 
uh, a lot of those, the first three candidates there are supporting Joe Biden. It remains to be seen, unless something happened in the past 30 seconds, um, what will, uh, which way Elizabeth Warren will go, which yeah. way she'll encourage her followers to, to move in the rest of the primary season. You know, it's early, perhaps too early to talk about this, but do you think any of those candidates, and if you think they're the cream of the crop that the Democratic Party have their eye on vice president? Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of people, you know, typically when people have a decently strong showing and then they get out, they are typically thought to be uh, under consideration or, or want to be under consideration, I should say, for vice president, for a cabinet position, and certainly for another run. Somebody like Pete Buttigieg is not even 40 years old. He can certainly run again in 2024 or further down the line. He's got a lot of time. Uh, one of the interesting things that has shaken out now is that uh, I don't think there's any uh, top male candidate, you know, top candidate for president on either side. So Donald Trump, uh, Bernie Sanders, Joe Biden, who's under 75 years old. Uh, and interestingly, a lot of the young people who were sort of uh, the foot soldiers in the, the quote unquote, you know, Bernie Sanders revolution, uh, young people are not turning out to vote in this primary in the numbers that Bernie Sanders would have liked to see. Uh, traditionally, he has not been as strong with African-American voters. And Joe Biden, as you mentioned, uh, did, uh, is doing much better with those voters. Uh, South Carolina was a big turning point uh, after Biden did uh, not as great as he might have hoped in the early states, Iowa, New Hampshire, so it's going to be a real fight to the finish, and it will matter a lot, um, not only where everybody who pulled out of the race goes, but who can mobilize, who has the most money, who can get yeah. people actually out to the polls. That's that's what really matters. I think Beto O'Rourke, I'm just looking at him as a potential uh, vice president. You know, and the, the trouble is, of course, if you have a young vice president on a Joe Biden ticket, then people are going to, that's going to remind people about how old Biden is and remind them that he might die. And with Bernie, it's even worse because he's already had a heart attack on this campaign. So it's a real balancing act. Having Beto from Texas might help as well, but time will tell as uh, we get towards the primary or to the convention in the middle of the year. Celeste Katz is in Boston this morning. Now, anyone who's been to Boston knows what a city of history it is. Uh, and in the, I mean, you cannot walk around the centre of Boston without bumping into tour groups led by people dressed in Revolutionary War outfits, generally. And one of the parts there uh, on the ground is a, a marking there saying, well, this was the site of the Boston Massacre, which was one of the, the sparks for the Revolutionary War. In fact, I think it was across the road, but you get the point. It's in that area. What happened with the Boston Massacre? And it is 250 years, I think, since the Boston Massacre. Yeah, today is the 250th anniversary of the Boston Massacre. As you say, it was uh, very much a, a turning point in our road to revolution against Great Britain. And basically, it was a street fight. It was a riot. Um, British... Uh, British soldiers and British agents had been kind of hassling, uh, you know, had, had occupied Boston. Uh, the patriots, uh, the colonists in Boston were fighting back, and there was this armed, there was this clash between the uh, Americans, <laughs> the future Americans, and uh, the British, which ended up in a number of uh, uh, colonists 
or patriots being killed, and this was sort of uh, an, an outbreak of this long simmering uh, violence, and uh, eventually, um, you know, this ended up yeah. sort of uh, shot heard around the world type of of thing uh, that ended up uh, really getting the the revolution going. Um, and so that day is obviously very important. Boston is known as, or a lot of American cities or towns, I think, claim this, but, you know, certainly a cradle of the American Revolution. And so uh, this is commemorated today with uh, ceremonies and musket fire and, and so on uh, as, as a very important day in U.S. history. Indeed. Although I don't know enough about it, but I will ask you this question. Didn't somebody like John Adams defend some of the British soldiers and get them off? Then that happened, or what happened? Uh, yeah, I mean, there, well, I mean, there's a number of, of different stories about the, uh, uh, about the Boston Massacre and, and how it happened. You've heard, um, you know, uh, John Adams, who went on to be president, of course, uh, was one of the people who defended uh, soldiers, the British soldiers that were involved in the Boston Massacre. He just wanted them, supposedly, according to the story, he just said that they deserved a fair trial. It wasn't that he wanted them to win or to be exonerated, but they were facing the death penalty, and he thought it would be, uh, he thought that it would be, fair and prudent for them to get a proper hearing okay. and um, basically, you know, just sort of cited confusion in, uh, uh, in the events of the Boston massacre, sort of an explanation for why this happened. All righty. Uh, you do have a public holiday coming up with the bizarre name. It seems of evacuation day. Who was being evacuated from where? Yeah, the uh, evacuation day is March 17th here. It's a very, very local holiday. It only, it only applies to Suffolk County, Massachusetts, which includes Boston and uh, some towns in the immediate vicinity. But uh, evacuation day was the day that uh, uh, British troops were kicked out of uh, Boston. And this, of course, is a big cause for celebration. It was uh, the first big uh, military victory for the colonists, for the patriots in the Revolutionary War. And so uh, it is commemorated, but only locally. And it so happens, this is not a national holiday, but it so happens that it coincides with St. Patrick's Day. And so you have offices and schools and certain businesses that are closed ostensibly or legally on the books for Evacuation Day, this very patriotic Revolutionary War holiday, but it also happens at the same time that people are having parades and listening to bagpipes and right. drinking green beer. <laughs> you know that sort of thing. Boston is uh, a very strongly Irish, uh, has a very yes, strongly Irish history, Irish roots, and so it uh, it just happened to work out very nicely. <laughs> what a coincidence! Rob has texted in and says Elizabeth Mo Warren might be a good vice presidential pick may pick up female votes and some Sanders votes. I mean, it's pretty sure. I know I, meant, I, I mentioned Beto O'Rourke, but you'd have to think a woman is going to have to be on the ticket. In 2020, they're going to have to find a woman, probably a woman of colour from somewhere. Yeah, you, you know, the, the calculus 
the traditional calculus was that you wanted to find somebody who would balance the ticket. So if you were an older presidential candidate, you would want somebody younger as a running mate. If you were from the East Coast, you would want somebody from the Midwest or the West Coast or the South. Uh, and now the calculation has expanded to include would you want, uh, if you're a male candidate, would you want a woman or you know, maybe someday vice versa. Um, so all those things will come into effect. And this contest, the big, one of the big issues has really been, do you want somebody who is more liberal or more moderate? And if so, do you want to balance out the ticket with somebody who leans more toward the other end of the spectrum? Uh, if Joe Biden is largely considered to be more of a moderate than Bernie Sanders, they're both progressive. Sanders identifies as a socialist, democratic socialist. Uh, I don't think Biden is quite all the way there. And there's some questions about how that'll play in certain parts of the country. And then, of course, how all of this will play against the real point of the entire exercise, which is to defeat Donald Trump in November. Um, so all those calculations will be in, in effect. It will certainly, uh, Mike Bloomberg has uh, come out of the race, endorsed Joe Biden, incredible, incredible amount of money, uh, literally unlimited resources. Yes. I think the guy's worth $60 billion. So um, he can't. He can't wholesale give Biden his campaign apparatus, but he could certainly put a very good dent in the, the kind of spending it takes to, to get the message out, um, especially against an incumbent president, whether you like Donald Trump or not. Traditionally, in the United States, knocking out an incumbent president is a hard thing to do. It is indeed, certainly in uh, recent times. Celeste, thank you very much. We will talk to you again in a couple of weeks, I hope. Always a pleasure. Thank you very much, Celeste Katz in Boston. On ABC Radio, you are with Rod Quinn. Well, David Kilby is with us in just a moment.